grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine that you were a CEO of the greatest company that ever lived. And we've so advanced ourselves in our society that we're going to repopulate a new planet. And you're in charge of setting up the society. Does anybody here want that job? So you're the one in charge. Where are you going to begin? You're responsible for deciding who's going to be in charge. You're the top management. You need middle management to handle the, the first city that will be established. And as you establish that first city, what form of government should it have? What laws should you put in place? What supplies will you want them to have ahead of time? And what things do you want them to gain on their own? Are you going to require everyone to work? And let's imagine at this point that you have limitless resources. Will you just provide everything they need? We have automatic dinner kits that will be delivered to everyone's house, ready to go, and they don't have to pay a dime. Will you make sure that everything's built ahead of time? Or will you want the people to build it themselves? Will you allow people to have choices? Or will you make all the choices for them? Let's say you're in charge of this global society building project. And you've gone through all the steps of, of preparing, planning, executing. You've set everything in place. And it, there it goes. Only things start to go wrong right away. Laws are getting broken. Things aren't getting fixed. People are hurting each other. What are you going to do? Are you going to step in and fix every little problem yourself? Are you going to take away their choices and so that you will be the one that makes the choices for them? They can't handle it anymore. Will you just do it all for them because they can't handle it themselves? When God built this world, he built it with him ultimately in charge, and yet he delegated. Delegated responsibility. Delegated tasks to be done by human beings to rule and govern on their own. What's he going to do when it goes wrong? Everybody has a bit of an opinion about what God should do when things go wrong. And Jonah had an opinion. Jonah had opinions about what God should do with Nineveh. When you look at the history of Nineveh, God says in the very first verses of Jonah, its evil has come up before me. What God is referring to is a long history of the Assyrian Empire, whose capital city was Nineveh. In one quote, it was even more shocking that God of Israel would even want to warn Nineveh Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of military victories, gloating over the number of corpses and cities burned to the ground. 
There's gory and blood-curdling details in some of their history books, which I won't share here. Leading to this ultimate state of violence and cruelty that today we would simply term a terrorist state. What would you have God do with Nineveh, whose evil has risen to the point where not only humans are aware of it, but it's gone all the way to heaven? God says this to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out the message against it that I will tell you. And here's the message that God gives to Jonah. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Today we're looking at a 30,000 foot perspective on God's justice, God's wrath, and his mercy. When you take that perspective, you are not just looking here at one individual Jonah and one king, the king of Nineveh, but we're trying to zoom out to see how this fits into the, the great history of the world how this fits into God's whole perspective on mankind as his image bearers in this world. God says Nineveh will be overthrown. Now some of your Bibles might have a different translation for that word. Some Bibles say destroyed. Some Bibles will even say changed. Now the word itself means to overturn and sometimes you know, like a coin would be flipped over. Or you flip over your pillow for a softer side. And in a sense, it's turned over when it's destroyed because God is going to wipe out what's there and turn it into something new. So when you destroy something, you overturn it. But there's another sense in which that word is used in the Bible, and that is to transform. When you overturn something by changing it, such as in repentance... God overturns the evil that's ruling in our hearts and transforms it into something new. So it could also mean change. In other words, there's two ways that this could go. One is to overturn it with destruction. Another is to overturn it with transformation. The first way, destruction, is the path of no repentance. Without repentance, it is a self-destructive prophecy that we are putting against ourselves. Without repentance, we as humans destroy ourselves. And that's what Paul is pointing out in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. For what can be known about God is obvious to them because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature have been perceived clearly ever since the creation of the world, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave give thanks to him because they were futile in your thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Three times in Romans chapter 1 it says that God gave them up to their own desires. Three times emphasizing that the wrath of God is not simply an angry God sitting up on a cloud with a lightning bolt in his hands, ready to strike anybody that does wrong. No, the wrath of God is the natural unveiling of what we do to ourselves. The wrath of God is God deciding to stop protecting us from our own destruction. In Romans chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is revealed when he gives us over to our own self-destructive habits, desires, when we're committed to not repenting. So repentance can lead to an overturning of society. Impenitence can lead to an overturning of society through our own self-destruction. And we do it to ourselves. It's just an unraveling of sin. Now, on the other hand, an overturning can also mean a leading to repentance, a turning over of society where people realize the path they're on is only leading to more destruction. Where people, whether they even know the Lord fully, whether their hearts are even changed, can at least see the natural consequences. If I drive drunk, I'm going to endanger my life and others. If I light this fire in my house, it's probably going to burn us all down. Where people can begin to perceive the truth of God, even if they haven't come to a saving knowledge of him. This is where a society can be overturned by God simply changing them from their path to something different. Now, from where we're standing with Jonah, we're on the sea level. He's coming up from the sea, he's coming onto the shore, and he's at zero feet altitude. He's looking at Nineveh only in terms of what he thinks is the best thing to do right now that will be just. In his mind, overturning means you're going to throw this city to the ground and punish them for what they've done for years of atrocities to our people. What is the response of the people then? It says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. A city-wide, society-wide change took place. They believed God. Now, it doesn't get more specific to say they believed in the Lord. They knew his personal name. They had a saving knowledge of his covenant. 
It doesn't go into those details, unlike the sailors who sacrificed to the Lord, but they at least believed that what God said, he would do. They at least believed that there was a recompense coming. There was a destruction coming based on their own habits of behaviors that had gone on for so long. Historians think that at this time, Assyria had also experienced several destructions already, several things that were working against them. And they took as a sign to say, we should pay attention to this message from this prophet now. From the greatest to the least, which means it was cross-cultural, it was for every class in society, from the impoverished peasant to the rich noble, to the king himself. Notice what it says about the king. It lists five things that the king did. When the king hears about the message of Jonah, number one, he arose from his throne, which the king would never want to arise from his throne and give up that seat if he was going to issue a decree. But he arose from his throne, and then he removed his royal robes, took off his regalia. He put on instead sackcloth, itchy camel hair, something that you'd use to carry potatoes in. And number four, he sat in ashes, a symbol of not only repentance, but our own mortality, that we're returning to ashes when we die. And lastly, then, he issued from the ashes a proclamation and sent it through the whole city that no one should eat or drink. They should call out to the God of Jonah and they should turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. So in just this short message of Jonah, God overturned a whole city. Is this just now? The city should turn from its evil. Should there be no consequences? Ultimately, what you find out about the justice of God here is, what is God trying to do with Nineveh? He wants to stop the evil. He wants to bring an end to the violence. He has no time, no place. His wrath is against all evil. And he wants to see it stopped. His concern is with the whole society from the greatest to the least. So if you were Jonah, marching into an American city today, what would the message sound like? What would be the goal? If we were to lead a march up to Washington, D.C., or pick whatever city you want, Vegas, and we're going to bring a message from the Lord, what's it going to sound like? What's it going to be accomplishing? And you see how the Lord's message is concerned with the violence and wrongdoing in our society. That the Lord isn't just going to sit back and hide in church while all of this is going on around us. He's going to act. And he sends people like Jonah to do it. And on a city-wide, society-wide level, he wants people to know the wrath of the Lord is against the things that are going on. 
but not in the sense that God is just an angry God waiting to strike down every person, but in mm. the sense of God is a God against destruction, against the evil that's working against all of us. The king of Nineveh then says, who knows? So what's God's response? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So did God change his mind? After all, he said he was going to destroy the city, and then he didn't destroy the city. And in fact, the word says he relented, meaning he changed his mind. The king of Nineveh is not sure about all this. He says, who knows whether God will relent? But who did know? Who did know what God might do and what his character might lead him to do? It was Jonah. Jonah knew that God's character was to have mercy before he would have wrath. When you look at God's wrath, you see it's so much deeper than thunder and lightning. In the story of the flood, the first time we hear about God bringing destruction on the world... It doesn't even use the word wrath. The word wrath doesn't even appear in reference to God to all the way to the book of Exodus. In the story of the flood, it doesn't say he was angry. It says he was heartbroken. And it says he relented. He regretted that he had made man. So once again, we might have to step back and take another look at our perspective of how God governs this world. In the fact that God offered an opportunity to repent, in the fact that God turned from what he was going to do, you see that God's not scripting everything for this world. He doesn't have this pre-written record that he's already written out for every choice that we're going to make, and there's nothing left for us to do. In the story of Genesis, it says that he makes man in his image, in the likeness of God, and he places them into the world to have dominion. When God decided to do this, he decided to delegate. So if you're that divine ruler over a new planet, and you're going to make your own city, and you're going to put people in charge, and you're going to let them have choices, guess what might happen? They might make the wrong choices. They might fail you. They might completely turn against you and decide that they don't like the way that you set things up. But you have given them the choice and freedom to do that. What God wants then when he places us into this world and he delegates his divine rule to cities like Nineveh and King's who are over the cities is to see the possibility for beauty, for goodness, for love, to be aware of the danger of violence, of perversion and hatred, 
So he sets kings into this world and expects them to lead the way he would. Psalm 72 explains this very thing. When it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. It goes on to lay out how King Solomon was instructed to rule with justice, to represent God's righteousness and how he ruled. God could have stepped in. He could have stepped in at any moment to bring an end to Nineveh, to run them all to the ground and bury them in a volcano explosion. But he saw a greater opportunity in not just wiping them out, but showing how his word can be so powerful to change a whole city. To show that he can save people who are so steeped in evil by overcoming them with his love and his call to something better. But he doesn't just step in and fix things. He doesn't just step in and stop evil with his own hand. He puts people in charge. Psalm 82 also says that the Lord sits in the divine council. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So that psalm pictures God as a great administrator, delegating out the work of correcting the wrongs in this world to those who are in charge, both from the spiritual powers that he's ruling over and from the earthly humans. He calls us to administer, and he rebukes us when we don't. And when we do fail, because we will, this is his ultimate message, to send a mediator. How many times in the Bible does God send a mediator? From Moses, who spends 40 days in the wilderness, and when the Israelites are about to be destroyed, he pleads with the Lord for forgiveness to the high priest whose job was to intercede for all the people and bring an offering of blood to the Lord once a year on the Day of Atonement, to Solomon who dedicates the temple as king and prays to the Lord that he would forgive his people their sins, which is ultimately leading to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, a greater than Jonah is here. Because Jesus was the mediator that Jonah was not. When Jonah was dissatisfied with God's decision, Jesus stepped in. And Jesus pleads before the Father all the way up to the cross where he's hanging and dying for our sins. And he says, don't hold these sins against them. His mercy wins out because of Jesus. In no way does God approve of the oppression or the violence or the suffering that's happening and he's always calling us to repent 
He's always allowing his wrath to come so it can correct what has gone wrong. But ultimately in Jesus, we see the greatest injustice that God ever allowed to happen. The greatest violence that ever took place in this world. And in his resurrection, Jesus righted every wrong. He declared justice to all the world. And in Psalm 96, it says the ultimate goal of all of this, from Jonah to Nineveh and onward, is to deliver all the creation from the curse of sin. To bring us to the heavenly, eternal home. Which is why we sing Joy to the World. Not just at Christmas time, but we sing that hymn based on Psalm 96. It says, far as the curse is found, God is bringing joy and joy and joy to overcome it. So before we sit back and judge God from our zero-foot perspective, the Bible helps us to zoom out to the heavens above and see the whole story from beginning to end and realize that we're not really equipped to judge every situation in this world, and we have to trust the one who does. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.